0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we continue our reflections into Paul's uh, first letter to the Corinthians, this beautiful letter that we have been at now for over two months, where we have been exploring the richness and the depth of St. Paul. Now, before we get back into chapter 15 and the topic of the resurrection of the body, I did want to offer up a few words in relationship to this discussion that a lot of people are having right now about who is the greatest. Now, certainly the context to that question is who is currently the greatest basketball player, and to some extent, who is the greatest basketball player of all time. Currently, the discussion is between LeBron James, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, and others, and of course, and more collectively, there's the question of who is the greatest of all time. A lot of people are having this discussion because of LeBron James's uh, recent achievements and performances, but I'm not here on Seeds of Truth to talk about that as much as, as I speak to it, it really had me asking the question anew, who is the greatest, right? And did Jesus answer that question? Well, he did. Let us go to Matthew chapter 18. We will go ahead and read verses 1 to 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So there you have it. He not only tells us who is the greatest, the child, but how to achieve greatness, Huh? which is to enter into that childlike simplicity, which is to enter into that childlike surrender, which is to enter into that childlike abandonment, that complete and total personal entrustment to God the Father. This is what defines greatness. So, as we are having this discussion as it relates to LeBron James, Kevin Durant, or Steph Curry, to who is currently the greatest NBA player, or for that matter, the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, or whoever your player might be, remember that all discussions of greatness must first always include not what we do, but who we are. You see, our greatness is not defined first by what we achieve on any one court or field but first by who we are in God. That's greatness. And I talk about this, my friends, because I find myself in far too many conversations with parents who talk about their wayward children at the age of 19, 20, 21, 22. And far too often in those conversations, there was an overemphasis on what they did growing up. And what I'm speaking to here specifically is what they achieved on the field or on the court, and what was lost in the process is what but who they are as a child of God. It is a very sad thing for me to see such an emphasis on the doing and at the same time de-emphasis on the being. Brothers and sisters, we are not human doings, but what? Human beings. Is what we do important? Well, of course it is. But if we want what we do to be great, it must be the outgrowth of who we are in God. This is why I always put such an emphasis on the in God before existing for other. Because if we're really going to let the world know of Jesus Christ, we must first come to know Jesus Christ. If we're going to understand the task that Jesus Christ has put before us, we must first understand the gift that is inside of us. This is the great structure of our Christian faith, is it not? Look at the Ten Commandments. The first three commandments are about what? Putting God first. And when we put God first, yes, then that will form and inform all the other commandments and how we are called to serve and love neighbor. Look at the Beatitudes. What's the first Beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Once we understand this call we have to be poor in God, to abandon ourselves to God, like Jesus talked about, right, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, only then will we understand the virtues that those Beatitudes embody. Look at the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then love neighbor as yourself. Again, one precedes the other. So, for you, the person who is having that conversation about who is the greatest NBA player currently and or of all time, remember what it means to be great. It's interesting, the Greek word for excellence, arete, translates as moral strength. Moral strength. So, if we want to achieve greatness if we want to achieve excellence we must have moral strength right if we want to overcome those temptations that come our way each and every day say no to to this temptation over here we must understand that we must first say yes to jesus christ in a personal relationship with him so all very important okay We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so let us turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 15 and read, let's see here, verses 29 to 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in peril every hour? I protest, brethren, By my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Come to your right mind and sin no more, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Okay, I want to turn our attention to verse 30. Why am I in peril every hour? (laughs) So if there is no resurrection of the body, St. Paul is saying, why am I in peril every hour? And oh, by the way, what does this peril look like? St. Paul actually gives a very detailed description of what this peril looks like in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to turn your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter 11, scroll down to verse 23. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 23 and following from Second Corinthians 11 for all of us to really appreciate what Paul means when he says, "Why am I in peril every hour?" Is he exaggerating? I don't think so. <laughs> Listen to, to Paul's own description here. "With far greater labors, far more imprisonments." with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Incidentally, what's the less one? 40 lashes less one? Well, this was a form of Jewish punishment administered by synagogue officials, huh? Although the Torah prescribed 40 stripes, the Jews would generally give 39 to ensure the maximum penalty was not exceeded. My dear friends, that Paul endured this treatment five times over displays what? His hourly, unwavering commitment to bring the gospel to Israel, no matter the cost. Verse 25, three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I have been shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Wow! Brothers and sisters, when in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 30, Paul says, I am in peril every hour, now you know what he's talking about, right? I mean, everything for the sake of the gospel, it has always fascinated me that Jesus Christ promised what? Great suffering, trial, persecution, if you followed him. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. But all in the name of Jesus Christ, it has redemptive value as Paul explains elsewhere. Verse 28, he goes on, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak, and I am not weak, who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I do not lie. At Damascus, the governor under King Eritos guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So here you have Paul talking about his peril, but he just doesn't stop at the physical ailments, if you will, the physical suffering, and even to some extent the emotional suffering, but also the relational suffering the sense of being abandoned by those who he ministered to. And the anxiety he is speaking to here is his longing that all those that he is preaching to, that he is speaking to, will convert in the name of Jesus Christ. So Paul wants us to really enter into the importance of this suffering, which in of itself is a great testament to The resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, we continue. Uh, Verse 31, I protest, brethren, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. (laughs) I die every day. You know, when you reflect into verse 31, and for that matter, verse 32, where he's talking about him fighting with beasts at Ephesus, that if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We must remember that Paul's mortal struggle was this being weighed down beyond his strength, this being weighed down by this call, yet he was able to overcome this by what? God's grace. God's grace. And he wants us to understand that if he was motivated by the human standard, he would have failed, right? He wasn't moved by the human standard. That is futile. He was moved by the God standard. He was moved by the standard of Jesus Christ. Does this not bring into play that all important question of what operates your motives, right? The uh, modus operandi. Why do you do what you do A very important question in the spiritual life, and certainly one we have taken up before, but one that Paul puts at the center of the table right now because he is telling the the Christians there in the Church of Corinth that if you are motivated by the human standard, if all you are concerned about is getting that pat on the back for what you have done, you will fail. You have to ask the question, why do you do what you do? Because in the end, by asking that question, you will enter deeper into the challenge that is behind the question. Because so many of us are driven by what? The human standard. What someone might think of what you do. We have to get beyond that. Work through that, if you will. Because only in the working through that will we begin to understand that, yeah, it's all about the God standard. It's all about God motivating everything that I do. I mean, think about all the encounters you have in your everyday. Just not all the people you meet, but the many details that are in all those conversations you have. There are many things that we say each and every day, and the many things that we say each and every day are very much tied to receiving man's approval, not God's approval. Sometimes, unfortunately... We don't say things we should because we, we are too concerned about what the person's going to say we are talking to, right? We always move, as, as Saints Peter and Paul remind us, to move in gentleness and reverence. But the virtues of gentleness and reverence do not remove the challenge. No, the virtues of gentleness and reverence help build the bridge by which truth shall pass. So often we want to be the hammer on the nail, so often we just want to say what, whatever it is that we, we want to say without really thinking about whether or not we should say it. When we anchor our conversations in reverence and gentleness, what we will quickly discover is that the conversation will evolve as it ought. But remember, as we move in gentleness and reverence, Jesus Christ does challenge us, well, to challenge others when it is necessary. Yes, timing is everything. These are points we need to ponder and ponder seriously. Why do you do what you do? Why do you say what you say? When you fail to say something that you think you should, why do you fail to say something? These are questions that should come up in an examination of conscience. Another piece we have explored, that that piece that speaks to the importance of looking back on our day and reflecting how we brought God into our day or how we didn't bring God into our day. So all of this is very much caught up in the subject matter that we are talking about because it is about living with the end in mind. It is about engaging these verses with a very practical application in mind. All right, what else could be said here? It's interesting that Paul says he is willing to swear, not by God, but by the pride he has in the Corinthians, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this is not a boasting about himself, but rather about the grace already operating in the community, despite its many faults. So Paul is saying this because he has confidence in them, right? But not confidence in them autonomous from from God, no. What does he say? it is because of the grace of Jesus Christ that is in you. This is what I have confidence in. This is what I boast in. This is what I have faith in. And should we not do the same? Should we not offer the same kind of encouragement to those Christians around us, to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe they are weak in a particular area. Encourage them to rise up in God's grace and let them know that they can do anything with God. It is a great consolation for me when I am struggling with someone, to have someone come up to me and encourage me, not that I alone can do it, but in God's grace can I do it. That's a great encouragement. And this is what Paul is doing here. My pride is in you to the extent that Jesus lives in you. How about this phrase, uh, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There is a great excerpt from the author Herodotus, who, of course, wrote the great work Histories. He relates in that book, Histories, that at Richard Persons' banquets in Egypt, a man would carry around an image of a corpse in a coffin and proclaim, drink and make merry, but look on this, for such shall you be When you are dead, we intoxicate ourselves with merriment. We intoxicate ourselves with amusement. And such things are not intrinsic evils. But when they become the end, you have a serious problem. When it becomes an end in of itself, you have a serious problem. You know, I see those bumper stickers, life is short, live hard, or those t-shirts, live this life, you only have one. And now it's interesting, those slogans, those phrases that we put on bumper stickers and t-shirts, those can actually be uh, quite noble, really, because we only, we do only have one life and we are called to live this life to the fullest. But in God or in Satan, in this intoxication, what do we read from Peter's epistle? Stay sober and alert because Satan is prowling like a roaring lion, right? Stay sober and alert. If you're going to be intoxicated with something, be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. We just celebrated the great solemnity of Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit in the upper room, the Holy Spirit in the form of fire. Let us be intoxicated with the fire of God's love. Let us be intoxicated with an enthusiasm for Jesus Christ. Let us glow with a fervor for Jesus Christ. When we are intoxicated with drugs, alcohol, we know what that looks like. We can't make out the person who might be five feet in front of us, which is the opposite of being intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Because what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, yes, is the love shared between the Father and the Son. But alongside of that, it is the love that is defined by presence, being present to another. We can only be present to the person next to us as we ought if we are living in the Holy Spirit. So just as we might be intoxicated with drugs and alcohol and and can't make out the person five feet in front of us, so we can say in its opposite when we are intoxicated with the Holy Spirit, we are truly present to the person who is five feet in front of us. And just how we might not be able to interpret the person talking to us when we are intoxicated with drugs and alcohol, in its opposite, can we truly interpret the person who is right in front of us when we are intoxicated with the Holy Spirit? You see, so we have this beautiful juxtaposition that we are called to enter into in the light of, once again, what St. Paul is saying here. How about this phrase, bad company corrupts good morals? Now, this is a phrase that refers to the corruption of morals rather than to the doctrine that he has been defending, that St. Paul has been defending. But that is the point, actually. He kind of turns this upside down so as to turn it right side up, because What he wants us to see is that bad doctrine will lead to bad morals. If you don't believe in the resurrection, if your personal survival ends with the tomb, if worms claim the ultimate victory, if there is no judgment or eternal life, then the primary foundation for moral life crumbles. As I've already spoken to it, if you do not live with the end in mind, then what does that life look like? Well, then the end is today and all you will pursue is, well, pleasures. Now, whether the dissidents believe death is the end or whether they claim superior knowledge that resurrection is only a a metaphor for spiritually renewed life here on earth, it all amounts to the same, does it not? Resurrection means endless hope and the absence of believing in the resurrection means endless despair. Now, what else does saint paul get into here in verses 33 and 34 um you know this phrase stop sinning uh, certainly would speak to the moral lapses that the corinthians have fallen into or potentially it may refer to uh, some of the christians propagating the idea of a purely spiritual resurrection in either case they show that they have in paul's words have no knowledge of god what is paul talking about there what is that phrase about have no knowledge of God. Knowledge of God means both knowing the one true God and in the light of knowing the one true God, living righteously, loving righteously. Does this not bring us back to that discussion of being in God for other? If we do not have a knowledge of God's love, then we are impoverished in our Christian faith. This is why, my friends, St. Paul time and time again exhorts us to come to know Jesus Christ. What does he say in the opening verses to Romans chapter 12? Be renewed with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, because the knowledge of Jesus Christ will draw us deeper into the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus Christ. And as it does that, It will lead us to a life of righteousness. It will lead us to a life of holiness. All right, what more could be said here as it relates to the resurrection of the body? Let us go ahead and read just a few more verses before our time is up. This is verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish man, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body which is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is alike, but there is one kind for men, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are celestial bodies and there are terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So here in verses uh, 38 to 41, we have these variations in nature, if you will, between the dignity of living beings. And I love this, where he speaks to uh, men, animals, birds, and fish. And then he gets into Uh, The heavenly bodies, right? Sun, moon, stars. He does this because by doing so, it enables Paul to illustrate the different gradations, if you will, of glory that will characterize the bodies of risen believers. And incidentally, my friends, if you were to go to your Bible, you see a footnote Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. There, Daniel likewise compares the righteous who rise again with what? The lights and stars shining in heaven. Beautiful stuff. What about this phrase, unless it dies? And we'll close with this. Well, as we know, as seeds must decay in order to germinate and bring forth life, so death is merely, my friends, a prelude to resurrection and new life. As we will discover tomorrow, this image of the seed and sowing will play a very important role in Paul's ongoing catechesis on the resurrection of the body. All right, I am looking up at the clock, and we are out of time. As always, my friends, if you have any questions, comments, observations, please do not hesitate to send your question, comment, or observation on its way to my email at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joholcraft.org. All right, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, The website is joeholcraft.org.